sometimes we watch the movies and uh, a lot of movies, you've got these chase scenes, you know, of some kind, right? We like the movies, it's not going well and somebody's going after somebody and we won't get too specific there, but um, you know, it always involves, it's kind of like actually what just happened with our microphone. And by the way, let me just tell you, I am not knocking on our sound guys. They're great. Um, but Sherilyn knows I have a pet peeve when we watch certain TV shows. It happens on any TV show. Have you ever noticed, this has nothing to do with the term, by the way, but uh, have you ever noticed somebody goes up to talk at a microphone, you know, maybe they're in a school gym or, or a real performance or something like that. Anytime on TV, anybody stands behind any microphone, they introduce feedback. I don't get it. Okay. Um, exactly. You know, you know, you watch movies and there's sometimes chase scenes and they're often running like through the woods, right? And so you know what's going to ha- what's going to happen next after about eight seconds of chasing? What's going to happen to the person who's running? They're going to trip and fall, right? You just mark it down. That was my point about the microphone thing. Just, yeah. So somebody walks up behind a microphone and it's going to have feedback. Drives me crazy. But anyway, so they're going to trip and fall. Well, you're watching this scene happen. And especially if it's on the, on the pursuer's home turf, right? If it's on their home turf, they've had time to like lay a snare, lay a trap, right? Sometimes uh, all kinds of things, you know, anything from the, from the, uh, from the rope that, that snags them and they get hung upside down when they step into it or, or they, they dig a hole in the ground, right? And then what do they, they lay over top of it. Uh, like brush and sticks and whoever's running, they're not looking at the path in front of them. All they're doing is they're looking behind at who's chasing them, right? Which I don't know why you do that. That's when you trip and fall and you fall into a big hole. But that's what happens, right? You've got these sticks and the brush over top. And I don't know what your kind of favorite, uh, favorite, uh, you know, trap scene is, but I think the, the old hole in the ground is kind of mine because you don't always know when it's coming. It's just, they're gone. Um, and so I'm pretty sure they get uh, hurt on the way down too. But um, you know, the, the cameras kind of stage the scene, right? They show them running, they zoom into their face when they look behind, and they zoom down to the ground where the hole is, I'm pretty sure it's right there. And then they zoom down to their feet, and, you know, the whole thing just kind of unfolds like that. There are some wonderfully uh, familiar passages that we often uh, go to Easter with uh, or, or preach about on Easter, and I think that's, uh, that's wonderful. Uh, we're in the gospel, or we're in, well, it's kind of a gospel, we're in the, in the book of Genesis, and um, we are right in this passage where we see Genesis 3.15, which from this view, now that we have the New Testament, we're on this side of the New Testament, we can see that Genesis 3.15 points all the way forward to the cross. So it is, as a matter of fact, a resurrection sermon, and you'll, you'll see that as we go more and more, right? Uh, it's good to celebrate the resurrection. It is, it is good. It is better to worship and celebrate the person who is the resurrection and the life. It's good news for every day of the year, not just for Easter. I know you know that, but it, it bears saying. One of the things that you find, though, is uh, as we as we as we really want to focus on the good news of the resurrection all the time. It can be sort of like we are running or we're, we're, we're doing life and we're just looking for like what we live in our culture is a culture of always wanting to hear the good news, always wanting to think positive thoughts, always wanting to experience the best of life, always wanting to focus on the best, focus on what's good. But sometimes, and this is the case here, The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not actually good news until we understand the bad news. 
the bad news of our own sin and rebellion, just like Adam and Eve, the bad news of our own struggle, the bad news of always focusing on the wrong things, looking behind our shoulder proverbially, and then we are always ready to fall into a trap that is no solid foundation unless we are willing to have an honest life, an honest conversation with the Lord our God. We might be afraid of that. We might be afraid of what is actually revealed as I grow in or pursue or, or respond to the Lord as he comes to us. When we're willing to see or own up to our own guilt, our, our loving creator God pursues us. He seeks us to help us know ourselves as we really are, as he sees us, which which we shouldn't actually be afraid of because God is good and God is kind and God is merciful. Then we're able to rest in the resurrection and the life. God graciously seeks guilty sinners. He examines hiding hearts and he brings just judgment to offer radical reconciliation. I remember when my kids were younger, we would play hide and seek either in a backyard or at the church that when they were younger and we were in Kentucky, uh, there were some uh, trees around there. Obviously, there are some here too. And so we'd be outside and they'd run. They'd find big, big objects to hide behind, you know? And so they run around and they hide and uh, they're behind these objects. We kind of have some idea where they are because they're not super great at being quiet, right? Um, so we just kind of have to pretend like, oh, what's that I hear? Is it over here? You know, when they're way over this way, you know? They don't realize at that age though, that that game does not translate well to living rooms and kitchens, right? Right, because outside, at least there's some mass that they're able to hide behind. You come into a living room, into a kitchen, you know, if your couch is out in the middle of the room, maybe, but otherwise, what is it? They're hiding under tables with no walls. Maybe chairs, but they're, you know, legs stitched together still don't make a a good wall. Or they hide under, if you have a, you know, one of those tables behind the couch or, Uh, a a coffee table and they hide underneath there. And they're sure that as long as their eyes are covered and they can't see you, you can't see them either. And so what do we do? We walk around and we're like, Skylar, Brayden, where are you? We don't still play this game anymore. They're They're onto it now, but right. How similar is this to Adam and Eve? They're in the garden. God has put them in this idyllic, perfect environment. And they're tempted by Satan, but also ultimately from within. And they succumb to that temptation. They weren't drugged to it. They were were deceived. But as soon as they chose their way over God's, as soon as they saw something that was a delight to the eyes, they knew. All of a sudden, they go from being naked and unashamed to naked and very ashamed. They sew loincloths for themselves. They've been naked the whole time. Why now all of a sudden? Because there's shame. Shame in their hearts and shame that expresses itself in the outworkings of life as well. Genesis 3.8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. 
That's like walking in the breeze of that literally breeze, walking in the breeze of the day. It's just conveying this idea of a normal everyday event walking with God. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. God is graciously seeking sinners. They've sinned. They've sewed loincloths together. And now God comes looking for them. He comes ready to walk with them in the cool of the day, you might say. And, well, they hide, right? In one moment, perfect beauty. In the next, shame and nakedness. Their eyes were both opened, or the eyes of both of them were opened, and so are yours and mine. That's why it's so easy to connect with, to relate to what's going on in Adam and Eve's lives. We know hiding. We know shame. We know running. We know fleeing and not have anywhere to flee to. Unless we're in Christ and we run to the resurrection and the life. Adam and Eve hid from God because they were guilty. Let's not, let's not over-emotionalize or, or rationalize this and all of a sudden start feeling badly for Adam and Eve, just like we do for ourselves or with a friend or with a spouse or with a family member or a neighbor. The reality of what's going on is a holy God gave them the perfect situation. They were tempted. They wanted to be tempted and they received and they sinned and they're hiding. They're fearful because they're guilty. very difficult to decide what words should come next. I'm guilty, God, but... Or to another person, I'm sorry I responded, to, responded that way to you when you... See how this works? Just see like every head in here nodding right now because this is all of us. This isn't me coming at you. This is the Lord coming to us, revealing himself to us. Imagine the fear. They're guilty. Oh man, what do we do? And God comes, God comes looking for them. Sin always leads to guilt, and guilt always leads to hiding. Now your hiding may look like different things. You may hide in the quietness of your own heart. You may isolate yourself. You may hide behind other, many other kinds of things. You might run towards something else as your way of sort of actively hiding. One commentator, commentator says, here is one of the saddest anticlimaxes of history. They eat, they expect marvelous results, right? That's what Satan does, the craftiest of all creatures. Eat this, it'll be good. Oh, God didn't really mean that. Oh, good, I'm glad you told me that because I was kind of worried. Now I can just go forward with this thing and just dive headlong into this temptation. No. They expect these marvelous results, they wait and then there grows on them, like a dark cloud coming over the sky, this sense of shame and guilt. Sin always leads to guilt, and guilt always leads to alienation and to hiding. Between the sinner and God, and between the sinner and other humans. This isn't only about our relationship with God, but how our relationship with God expresses it outward in our relationship with others. They hide themselves from the presence of God. But when you're hiding from God, like wherever you are, whatever you're engaged in, it's like hiding under a kitchen table. It's like closing your eyes and pretending that 
as long as I don't see him, he can't see me. But we know better. And so we, we create different ways of hiding. We create different ways of, of running from the Lord. But I want you to notice something about what happens here. God could have just said, and, and trust me, in other places of the Old Testament, he does. He could have just opened up the ground and they're gone. Let's start over. Well, he does start over at one point. He, he doesn't bring a tornado to wipe out the Garden of Eden and wipe out Adam and Eve as well. Wipe out the serpent. No. He comes walking, looking, as it were, for Adam and Eve. And they heard him. They heard him. They heard him walking. God graciously seeks guilty sinners. Where are you? God asks. Rest assured, friends, it's not because God doesn't know. Right? Mom and dad who played uh, hide and seek with your kids at the kitchen table before. Where'd you guys go? Making sure you stand up and look high. Well, you know where they are. It's not, a, it's not an in interrogation of an angry God coming ready to lay it all out on those who disobeyed him. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We see, I think, as much grace and mercy in the Old Testament as we do in the New. God graciously comes. He patiently and kindly asks, where are you? Where are you? It's like the heartfelt cry of someone looking for someone you dearly love. Where did you go? I can't find them. But we know it's not that he can't find them. Adam, Adam responds, right? I, I, we heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Oh, you did? You hid yourself, huh? Notice that he doesn't say, I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid because I know I sinned. I don't like this feeling of guilt, so I ran away from you. I hid from you. Imagine how things might have changed. I mean, he'd already sinned, so it wouldn't have changed that. But if he'd have said, I heard you and I knew that I sinned. And I didn't really want to own up to it. Might have been a very, very different kind of conversation, at least for a moment there. Instead of coming to God who can deal with our sin, who can love us through our sin, who always receives those who come to him back regardless of their sin. He thinks he can hide from God's omniscience, knowing everything, and his omnipresence all, everywhere at all times because he is not limited by our human faculties. God says, Adam, you're lost. Now you're lonely, and I've come to find you. God comes after. God seeks sinners because he loves his children. He comes graciously to us examining, hiding hearts, right? Adam's already, he's already acknowledged that he's naked. He already knows that he's naked, but God asks another question, and notice the purpose is God is leading Adam somewhere. He's just not laying out a whole bunch of questions. He's leading him to understand himself, to examine his hiding heart. He says, uh, who told you that you were naked? Oh. His conscience told him. 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Right? It's a good practice never to ask a question you don't already know the answer to. So sin is afraid of, I'm sorry, Adam, sin made Adam afraid of God's presence, afraid of wanting to hear God's voice. And ever since Adam, we run, we hide from the very God who is coming to save. From the very one who is coming to say, you don't have to flee from me, even in your sin. Everyone, boy, girl, man, woman, is created in the image of God. Even since Adam, we are created in the image of God. Now, though, as, as sinners with every part of who we are, doesn't mean there's no good in any person, but it means that every part of who we are, our mind, our, you know, our thinking, our, our faculties, uh, is all tainted by sin. Who told you you were naked, God asked? Let me tell you something. He never asked, I just said this a minute ago, he never asked a question he doesn't know the answer to. He's God. He's God. And he asks questions to help us see our shame, help us see our guilt to understand our reasons for sinning. So I want to ask you, is there a question God's asking you today? Even as Jesus was speaking to Martha after Lazarus is being raised from the dead, and he says, do you believe? And she says, Lord, dead giveaway right there. I do believe. I do believe. Anyway, so as Adam, uh, uh, as God is, is sort of questioning Adam and unveiling his hiding heart, Adam blames Eve. That's husband leadership right there. I'm telling you, right? Where are you? And then who told you you were naked? Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose of a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding, of course, who God is, will draw it out. Draw it out by asking good questions, by striving to get to know someone, striving as God does here to help him see his own heart. And then more directly, he asks this question, as I said a minute ago, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Imagine raised or furrowed eyebrows maybe at that point. Not exactly sure talking about God who doesn't have a body. So there's that. And so Adam, great husband leadership. He's got courage of conviction here. And he's like, she did it. <laughs> right? We laugh at that. I mean, it's, it's a tale as old as time, but because we know that that's us, right? She did it. I just would like to see the look at that moment, right? I mean, they're standing there, they're hiding, God, you know, the whole deal, and she's like, or God, Adam's like, she did it. I don't know what that would have been. Some of y'all ladies have some good looks like that, but I'm not going to ask somebody to come up or I'll be in trouble there and demonstrate it for us. And then the Lord turns to Eve and he says, what is this that you've done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I mean, do you see the justification and the blaming and the exaggerating and the blame shifting going on all over the place? She did it. Well, he did it. It's not my fault. Somebody else has got to be responsible for this. Not me. Every one of us sin, right? Raise your hand if you've sinned before. Come on. That's like everybody's hands go up, right? Like, did you know that when we sin, when you sin, you can still give glory to God? 
by coming to the Lord and just acknowledging it very openly, openly confessing it, which just means to agree with God. God, your way is right. I chose my way. It was wrong. It was sinful. Change my heart. Help me to love you more, follow you more. Thank you for the cross. Get ahead of myself on the sermon, but at the end of the day, that's really it. Repentance is worship. Just think about that for a minute. Now, I know you're hearing me, and I know you may not want me to get more specific or or, or know what's going on in your heart now. So thankfully, I don't, because I don't know hearts, but God does. And God comes to us in conviction. Whether you have been a professing follower of Jesus for many, many, many years, or maybe you're here this morning and you've been religious for many, many years, but not a genuine follower of Christ because you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Listen, there's no shame in that, even though you feel lots of shame. Because you haven't gone to the Lord to help you deal with your shame. But he will. Don't keep hiding. Don't keep running, friend. Go to Jesus, who didn't only resurrect, but he is the resurrection and the life. Being deceived isn't an excuse, right? We're desired all over the Bible tells us, but James tells us we're desired by the lusts of our hearts. In other words, it's not necessarily wrong to want something. The question is, how much do you want it? What are you willing to do to get it or to avoid it? James 1, 14 and 15 says, each person is tempted when he's lured away, right? You see the word lure there. We just spent some time down in South Georgia on a vacation and we did some fishing, which I'm not good at fishing, let me just tell you. But in the right environment, anybody can catch fish, right? And so on a place where they're trying to get people in for vacation, they make sure there's plenty to go, plenty of fish to go around there, right? But you put that right thing on the lure, I mean, put the lure on the hook, and they just see that, and then they go up there and grab onto it. What have you grabbed onto in your past? Worse yet, you've still got the fat lip from the hook that dragged you across the lake and you see the same thing come in and again and you're like, yes, I want that. I know it hurts, but I'll take it for a while. Won't hurt forever, will it? Not if you trust Jesus, it won't. We're lured away by our own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friend, I'm just going to be real straight with you for a minute. The Lord, like Adam and Eve in the garden, the Lord may be, you may be hearing sort of the, the voice of the Lord calling you today. Sinner, come home. Child, Repent and, well, become my child. The still small voice of the God of all creation, powerful, more powerful than we can ever imagine. I'll tell you, that will bring true fear. But in the still small voice of the Lord, in your conscience, in your inner being, your heart, oh, friends, while it's today, respond. 
If you can sense the moving of the Lord in your heart saying, respond, come to me, leave that old life, leave that sin you've been clinging on to for all these years, or even for these months or weeks or days, or for 20 minutes, leave it, let go, come to me. Being deceived is not an actual excuse. Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and they served uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He's speaking about idolatry there. He's talking about suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. To suppress something means that it's active. It's ongoing. The truth would be coming up, if you will, and you're pushing it down. You're pushing it down saying, yeah, I will not believe I will not believe I want to go on pretending that God can't see me in my sin. I'm going to go on pretending that the way that I'm living life is actually bringing me joy and eternal happiness. But I know it's not because I'm ashamed. Because I'm hiding. Because I'm running. Listen, there's nothing any of us can do about yesterday's sin. Right? I want everybody to look at me for just a minute right here. Because you, you may have had some religious person... You may have had a godly man or woman, because we don't do everything right either. Bring shame into your life, or, or maybe they say something that's true in the wrong way. I've done that before. And all you choose to fix your eye on, like Adam, like Eve, well, they said it to me the wrong way. They weren't kind and uplifting and encouraging to me. They actually told me the truth, and I'm mad. Okay, so you want to keep hiding, just with a club. That's not the life God wants for you. You can't change anything that's happened in the past, but God can make you new today. Christian, you may be clinging to guilt from sin, that the kindness of God has been convicting you of. Did you know that when we're convicted, when we're made to know by the creator of the world that we are guilty for sin, it's love. It's love. It's love. Because he's calling you to himself. He's seeking you. Sometimes we can make restitution if necessary, but you can do what's right before God now, today, by the power of God. You can confess your sin. You don't have to go on and on and on about it. You just, God, I'm wrong. It's sinful. I know your way's right. How foolish can I be? And God is not up there saying, or in your heart saying, you fool, how could you be so stupid? That's the enemy. See, that's the serpent talking. God just says, come home. I repent, you're forgiven. We confess and we repent rather than faking or blaming or exaggerating or hiding and many other ways that we hide from the Lord, right? But because God is holy, he must punish sin. But friend, listen, he does not have to punish it on you. You do not have to be punished for the sin that you and I deserve to be punished for. And Genesis 3, 14 and 15 point that out to us as we're able to look at this story from the cross, from the resurrection, right? God continues to kind of suss out their sin, uh, uh, try to understand or discover the sin for the benefit of Adam and Eve. 
And he says in verse uh, 3, 14 and 15 to the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Notice there's no question here. There's no opportunity for repentance for the evil one. But there is for you and for me. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all lives. That's the first curse in the Bible. So far, we've seen a few blessings. This is a curse from God. Cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God's grace already given, already shown to Adam and Eve. In the midst of, in the aftermath of their sin, there was grace. But for the devil, there's no opportunity for repentance. God cursed him. This is sort of a, um, um, a, a twofold or a multiple fold curse. One is to the serpent as a physical creature, creature, one is to the devil. Donald Barnhouse says to eat dust, which is where God sent him. To eat dust is to know defeat, and that is God's prophetic judgment on the enemy. Right? There's a continuous aspiration, but he will never attain anything but the curse that God has given him. That is true, even as we see today, for the stake and to the enemy, to the devil. If the Lord God hadn't victoriously defeated the enemy, you and I could never be radically restored to him. The story would never have changed to, oh, now I know that you sinned. I can't quite overcome this guy. But if you work hard enough, if you do enough of the right things, I'll let the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. If God could not have overcome Satan and hell and the grave through the cross of Jesus Christ, we would all be dead in our sin for all of eternity. And God would be right and God would be just to pour out all of his wrath and hatred and anger towards sin on everyone who has ever sinned, which is everyone. And I will tell you, friends, God would not be any, uh, any lonely at all. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have existed in perfect, fulfilled fellowship, complete fellowship from before the beginning of time. And if that would have happened, they would be, he would be perfectly complete and satisfied in their fellowship. But God intervened, sending his son Jesus to live a, a perfect life, not only not to sin, but also to do every right thing he should have ever done for you, for me. Oh, friend, if you're here under the sound of my voice today, under the, the preaching of God's word, anything that's not from the Lord, just let it fall to the ground. But I know because I know how God works through his Holy Spirit. Some of you are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart now. And I just implore you, I would beg you, I would get down on my hands and my knees, almost as Paul did when he's speaking about the Israelites and just say, please, don't, don't cover Don't play hide and seek. So you'll never win. You're already found out. You know that. That's why you're hiding. That's why you're running. 
Genesis 15 tells us that there is a particular line from whom would come Jesus through the line of Abraham, through the line of David. And Jesus would come and he would live this perfect life and he would go to Calvary. We get angry when we get disciplined or or called on the mat, even for something that we've done. Imagine the Son of God never once sinning and never being made to have to be our sin sacrifice. But Jesus laid down his life willingly for you and for me. That's love. The God who, who came to the garden and said, where are you? He came and he, he sought us. He found us. He gave his life for us. I want you to look at verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, when, when the Apostle Paul is just giving this rousing uh, defense of the crucifixion. I'm sorry, of, well, the crucifixion, but also the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, thus is, it is written, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam is speaking about Adam who we're reading here in Genesis. And the last Adam is referring to Jesus Christ, who is, who is the second Adam, the last Adam. But it is not, verse 46, uh, the spiritual fact that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, Adam, of the dust of the ground. And the second Adam is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as this man is of heaven, so also are those who, of, who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Those who die without Christ do not receive the benefit of worshiping God for all of eternity in heaven. You receive the just punishment that's due to you. It's really due to all of us, but Jesus took it upon himself. At the cross, Satan bruised Christ on the heel. At first, it seemed like it was going to be great victory for Satan and a terrible defeat for God. My wife helped our family last night. We did these resurrection cookies. And uh, part of the, you know, you make these cookies and there's a, there's a kind of a word picture for each ingredient and how it gets all put together. And then you, you preheat the oven, then you, you put oven, the oven and you, you put the cookies in and they stay overnight. And then in the morning you get to bite the cookies, eat the cookies. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of tape the oven shut and, um, and you turn the oven off. And as, as the oven cools down, these meringue cookies um, get hollow in the middle. And so you get to see a representation that the tomb is empty, but True to form, just like the instructions said would happen. I'm like, well, what if this doesn't go like this? Right? And so, can I just roll you guys under the bus for a minute? Yes? Thank you. Uh, I don't do this very often with my kids, but it says, uh, once you've gotten everything prepped and you're getting ready to go, 
they're seeing the delicious cookies, but there's always like, you know, you can't eat the cookies right now. And so tell the kids to get ready and go to bed. And uh, I was before I could even say it. And, and one who shall remain nameless said, oh, can I lick the batter off that? And I was like, well, hold up. Just not, not yet. Not yet. Can you imagine the sadness and the disciples, Mary, as Jesus was crucified? They took his body, they laid it in a tomb. And just like even in, in funerals that we have today, there's a point, there's a time where it's sort of your, your last goodbye. We call it an interment often. And you walk away with grief in your heart. The grief doesn't change when you get in your car and drive away. The grief didn't change for those who walked away from the cross, walked away from burying Jesus in a tomb. No. It remained. But Sunday's coming. I'm sure you've heard that before. Sunday's coming. He's not going to be in the tomb for long. In fact, it's only three days and he will be risen from the grave. The tomb will be empty. Salvation is accomplished. And it's worth saying, even before Jesus was raised from the dead, salvation was accomplished. The moment Jesus died, he paid the full penalty for you and for me. He did not have to go to hell to suffer any condemnation other than giving his life at Calvary. But the resurrection, Romans tells us, is to demonstrate the power of God that is uh, powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. And when we trust Christ with our life, That resurrection power is given to everyone who follows Jesus, who trusts in Jesus, to live the life that God has created us to live in restored fellowship. It's radical restoration because it took the the radical work of God to give himself out of love for you and me. Friend, this morning, will you respond to the still small voice of the Lord God when he brings conviction? Because only one who loves brings loving conviction and correction. Parents, grandparents, it's the same thing that you would tell your children or your grandchildren. I'm not letting you live however you want because I love you. Because I want the very best for you. Do you see how God graciously seeks guilty sinners, examines hiding hearts, and brings just judgment to offer radical restoration. I hope you do. And I hope you'll respond to the Lord as he pricks your heart to follow him in one way or another. We have an opportunity to remind ourselves of everything that God has done for us when Jesus came and he gave his life. His body was beaten. He was flogged. His body was broken and Jesus gave us this Lord's Supper to say, when you meet together, do this in remembrance of me until the day that I come. This broken body and this blood that was spilled to atone for sin. If you're a Christian and maybe you've traveled and you you worship at another church that, that believes similarly that the Bible is the ultimate only sole authority for all of our living and that Jesus alone is the only way to be radically restored, to God the Father, through repentance and faith. We invite you to partake with us and celebrate what God has done in your own life. If you're not sure 
or you're sure that you're not in Christ, we just want to encourage you to abstain from this time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. In fact, to do so would to eat and drink would be to eat and drink judgment on yourself in a, in a manner of speaking. And, and we would want for you to hear God's word. Come to him in salvation. And I'd love nothing more than to talk with you about that. I'll be available up front here after the service or even during communion. We want to just invite you to come and tap me or the family member or friend that brought you here. And we'd love nothing more than to spend five minutes or 20 minutes or several hours talking about the good gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and let's worship together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you gave yourself not a set of rules, not just a pattern to follow, though you did give us a pattern to follow, but you gave yourself to redeem us, to make us like you. In fact, to restore us in a radical way to the way that we were created to live. Thank you for giving us a picture of how you seek us. Gently, slowly, patiently, you seek. And you seek in order to save. And so, Lord, we pray that we would eat and drink this morning with just a wonderful, joyous, celebratory heart. And while we take this as maybe individuals or families sitting together, this is a corporate Thing. We're seeing, Lord, that through the, the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, you actually are working to bring us together, to make us one, to shape us into the church built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.